0: If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple of guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, Just Not Sports. On today's show, we'll talk to ESPN anchor Hannah Storm about owning her own production company and what it's like to move behind the camera. And we'll go deep on sports rap with author, comedian, art gallery owner, and battle rapper extraordinaire Jensen Karp, the only person who knows the album B-Ball's Best Kept Secrets better than we do. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Not joining me this week are two regular co-hosts, Gareth Hughes, Adam Ollard, both tied up for work. Who the hell knows where they are? If you've seen them, let us know. We're worried. But with me, saving the day once again, in person, in studio, the amazing editor, producer, talent booker after last week, (laughs) Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, are you still in a high after booking Scott Pollard to come on and talk Survivor with us?
1: Absolutely, it was so fun to edit the show back and listen to everything again. And uh, of course, I'm analyzing what questions I didn't ask him and which ones I wanted to talk to him about. But <laughs> what uh, question? What question did you want to ask? Um, I, I think I was just more curious in like the fan servicey type of questions. But it sounds like they discourage them from answering those. Yeah. How far is camp from tribal? You know, how right. long does certain things take? What happens when you know? Um, I would just, I think I just want to go on the show. That's really what it boils down to. So I'll do that. And then I'll come back and I'll tell you guys all about it. Ah, uh, well, you need to, you, we need to find a new editor for, for a month or two. Yeah, <laughs> for month. Yo, you'll be back after week one. Like everyone was like, I'm this guy
0: boot. Joe creeps me out and sending him out. <laughs> Uh, Well, we got a jam-packed show, both Hannah and Jensen. The interviews are a lot of fun, so let's just get right to our hammer. So if you listen to the show, if you're one of the beautiful and unique sparkle ponies who make up our core audience of listeners, you know we don't just send people emails and invite them on. We go public and slam the hammer because they've been out there talking about something that they like away from sports and therefore are legally obligated to join us on Just Not Sports to discuss it. So, Joe...
1: Who you want to slam the hammer to this week? So in honor of having Jensen Karp on the show talking about athletes and rap, I wanted to slam the hammer down to Rich Homie Kwan. Do you know who this guy is? No. He's a rapper. So um, for work, I traveled to the Big Ten Football Championship game a few years ago, and Michigan State was playing in the Big Ten Football Championship. And in 2013, they sort of embraced his song type of way as like this anthem for the team. Gotcha. So you go in the locker room and they are all just like jamming out to it. And he eventually found out about this. And at the end of the season, like was invited to the game. They won. They go to the Rose bowl. They beat Stanford. He's like in the locker room. It was this whole crazy thing. D'Antonio like dancing with the team. I would just love to talk to him about like, what is it like maybe, I don't know how you find out to get this call and say like, Hey, the Michigan state Spartans are like <laughs> uh, adopting your song. <laughs> yeah. And they want you to come and it was, he just felt like part of the team. It was kind of this weird thing. And I don't know what other instances of like sports and rap have happened like that. Like whatever the crossovers there are, like when has some, has a team like adopted an anthem? And then the guy's like in the locker room dancing with them after they win the Rose bowl. That's what I want to know.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: I can't think of it for like maybe hip hop, but
0: um, the, I guess the most famous example for people our age is like the, the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. And when I say people our age, like I, I was born like in September 30th of 1979. So it's not like I yeah. was out there rap rock into this, uh, but they embraced that song. Like we are family. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh uh uh, uh Ow. I, I yeah. can keep
1: singing Joe, but I, I won't. We'll put that at the end, uh,
0: but uh, they adopted that song and they sort of became the, we are family pirates. I can remember like the 2005 white Sox embraced, um, uh, Don't stop believing. Yeah, and I, when they had their their parade here in Chicago, Steve Perry, is it right from yeah, Journey? From Journey, came and sang on stage oh, with okay. them because he, he was kept he kept being like AJ, get out here and sing with me to AJ Przinsky. Not uh, Which having tells him. me, like, maybe AJ like was like the biggest fan of the band. Uh, we got to get AJ on the show, choice. man, because he. We heard he's like a huge into Game of Thrones books and in 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 throwing spoilers at the TV show fans. Oh man, a huge him into
1: Journey. There we go. I, I just that fascinated me of like, you know, a team adopts this anthem, yeah. and then the guy shows up and he's like, was he, just, he from East Lansing or something? I or? don't think so. I don't know. I don't know the connection either. Oh, I think a one, one. one of the one of like one, a defensive back or someone liked the song and sort of. Just said, this is going to yeah. be our. Well, it'd be mantra. weird to get called into
0: a team you don't have a connection to. Like I remember the year Adam and I, when we, we first started working together, we went to the Super Bowl in Dallas when Pittsburgh played um, Green Bay, mm-hmm. and that black and yellow song, oh yeah, at Wiz Khalifa was everywhere, and the oh, Steelers, Steelers fans adopted yeah. it. But he did that because he's from Pittsburgh, I think.
1: Oh, so yeah. like,
0: but so like, if you write the song that you kind of want to be the team theme, that's one thing. But if you're just gonna get a call and it's like, hey, it's the coach of Michigan State's uh, football team, and yeah. we want you to come to the Rose Bowl. Well, I don't. I I you know, go, yeah, right? I
1: mean, I, I'd I'd show up. It's like yeah, why not? Kind of an honor. It just seemed like such a strange scenario, but they it was everywhere. I mean, it was, you know, in his post game interview, D'Antonio is saying, "I'm gonna go do the type away in the locker room with my players," and everyone Eddie George on Fox Sports is like, "What the hell is the type away?" And Mark D'Antonio is like, "Uh, you don't know, you don't know what I'm talking about." It was it was just so surreal and weird. Oh. And so being there, it was kind of cool. Anyways, yeah, I like it. Um. That's my thing. You know, rap, sports, crossover. And it's a good one. It's timely. I know, right? It's wonderful. It's topical. (laughs)
0: Uh, Mine, I'm going to go a little serious. I'm going to take it down a notch. Yeah. Uh, NBA player, Wayne Ellington. uh, Formerly, I think he was the most outstanding player in the NCAA tournament in 2009 when the Tar Heels won North Carolina. Okay. Now he plays with the Brooklyn Nets. He... um, just won like a big award for with the NBA for his work in the community. And I believe his foundation is the Power of We campaign. Um and it's all about gun violence and mm-hmm. ending gun violence. So his father, I think, was was actually gunned down a few years ago. And it was what I I believe what prompted his movement into um this issue. Mm-hmm. I'd love to invite Wayne to come on, talk about the, you know, the campaign, talk about what I'd love to hear what he's heard from people. Um, I just would be interested to see, does he, is he getting support? Are people sort of throwing their hands up and saying, we don't know what to do about it anymore. Is yeah. he getting pushback from people who say, you know, don't take the guns away. I just, I would be fascinated to talk to someone at the heart of the gun violence movement, um, about what, what they're experiencing on the front lines of the topic
1: or just how he navigates. Um, I don't know, talking about gun culture in like professional sports. I feel like, yeah, um, I don't know. I'd be curious what other athletes have have what his what his involvement with other athletes has been like, and right. um sort of navigating that. I don't know. Just be so curious. Wayne,
0: please join us. All right. So let's jump right into our interviews. We've got two really interesting subjects uh, this week. As I mentioned, ESPN Sports Center anchor Hannah Storm, host of Face to Face with Hannah Storm, too. The kind of a deeper interview show where she talks to athletes, kind of goes into their world, experiences who they are as a person, which was really what drawed me to the show. Um, She's going to talk about owning a production company and what life has been like as she's transitioned to uh, directorial projects, what her style is like as a director. um, How do you manage to do daily sports centers um, and run a production company on the side? So it's a really fascinating look at um, some of the unique ways that some of these personalities in sports you see um, are going way beyond what you actually are privy to on the airwaves. And then Jensen Karpu, um, hilarious guy, really interesting uh, comedian, writer. His new book, Kanye West owes me $300, is just tearing it up. It came out this week. Um, he's going to talk about life as Hot Carl, a rapping <laughs> phenom that, uh, who legitimately got a million-dollar uh, record contract from Interscope. And then he's going to talk about uh, not just that and the story from the book, but also athletes who rap. I heard him on the JJ Reddick podcast. He was name dropping Dana Barros, Cedric Sabalo. The guy great. knows his athlete rap. So we're going to break down his um, his Mount Rushmore of athlete rappers. We're going to talk about who he would have collaborated with uh, as Hot Carl if he had had the chance, <laughs> and uh, and maybe a little bit of. Uh, some Easter eggs into the video game NBA Live 2003. Oh, yeah. uh, so stick around for that if you were if you were a gamer. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Hannah Storm after this. Joining us on the show right now is Hannah Storm. Hannah is an award-winning journalist, author, anchor, and advocate. She's one of the faces of ESPN Sports Center, as well as the host and executive producer of the primetime interview series, Face to Face with Hannah Storm. But today, we're going to focus on Hannah's work behind the camera. She's the founder of Brainstorming Productions and the director of several documentaries for ESPN. Today, we're going to talk to Hannah about her directorial style, her dream projects, and much more. First of all, I got to ask you, like, how do you find time for any of this? Because... Being an anchor of SportsCenter and all the other projects that you do with ESPN is incredibly demanding, and then running a production company on top of it seems, um, I guess, consuming to the point of just exhaustion. So, where where do you find the time to, to do this?
2: I know. I wonder that myself. And um, especially with having my new show on SportsCenter, it's even more time-consuming. Yeah, because- right. It's face-to-face with Hannah Storm, so it's all these really in-depth interviews. So I'm doing the kind of research, you know, the night before and the days before that I did back when I was at CBS News. So that's even, you know, more demanding than doing what we might call a traditional sports center. And then, of course, I travel a lot, you know, to major events and um, do any number of things. So, like, if you just took this job on its face, it is an incredibly demanding job. So in terms of the production company, I started that after I left CBS and before I came to ESPN. I really wanted ownership of something creatively. I'd written a couple of books, but I really wanted to be able to, you know, use that sort of creative side of myself, and, and frankly, a, a side where you know I wanted to call the shots in terms of creating something that I thought would be meaningful um, in, in programming, and so. I basically started it with that idea, and I also started my foundation at the same time. And um, I, I hadn't decided where I was going yet because I was in between jobs, but I knew that I wanted to have those two pieces in place, my production company and my foundation, before I went anybody else and before I went anywhere else. And what I've been able to do is if I, say, had a production company that was a full-time filmmaker, it would be one thing. Right. But what I've been able to do is make films, really spread it out. So I basically have a film every, I would say, year to year and a half. Mm-hmm. And that way it doesn't stress me to the point of, you know, not being able to function. It definitely doesn't take away from what I'm doing on the air, so for me, what I'm doing on the air is, is prima, right? Like you can never—it's—it's it's like an athlete that plays for a team, and maybe they might have other interests in doing other things. I always use that analogy. Um, but if it ever got to the point where you were distracted or it took in any way, uh, shape, or form away from your day job, you know, you—you you can't do it. And so I make sure that when, you know, I take vacation time off if I have to be at a shoot, I just would schedule that into sort of my regular time off so I don't miss any extra time. And then, you know, I get up really early. I'm up at 5 for my job, and I'm generally home by about 1 to one thirty. So I really try to sort of, you know, spread out my calls. You know, I'll do maybe a couple of calls, but I won't go All day long and into the night, you know, at times it's more intense, obviously when I'm shooting. Uh, but I've, you know, blocked out the whole, you know, whatever, if it's a week, if it's a few days or whatever for a shoot. So I think I've gotten really good at managing my time. It's kind of a long answer to your question, but it, <laughs> it, it is difficult. It's not easy. And I'm not like going to sit here and pretend like, you know, a lot of days I just don't want to, you know, I just want to go home and do my thing and chill. And, you know, I can't because obviously with a production company, a legit business, you got to keep it going, you know, okay. you got to talk to contacts, you got Always pitch. You've got to stay on top of it. But I'm also really realistic, you know, right now about what the priority is, which is, you know, my job and I have three kids. So, you know, those things are are my, you know, major priorities. Um, But the production company, I mean, I I love uh, doing films and I've got another one that I'm working on right now.
0: Uh, now, first of all, on this show, since we cover like what athletes do away from sports we 're huge fans of athlete distractions. I just want to get that out there, so guys, if you 're listening, like if you want to go make that rap album, go make that rap album
2: no, i 'm so glad you said that because you have to have passions right That's i mean right. listen if you 're a creative person, if you 're a competitive person, you 're not going to be one dimensional. I mean, that's actually what's great about your show. And actually, that's what I find interesting. When I interview athletes with face-to-face, too, is what are you yeah. passionate about? What are you doing off-court? Like, who are you as a person, you know? And, and I think that, you know, for anybody to sort of sit around and say, well, you couldn't possibly be doing that and doing a great job at all of it. Well, that's not necessarily true because there are people who can handle more.
0: That's right. And no one, no average person leaves work and says, I, I know the, the way to solve this bad day is just to sit here and just stare at the wall and think about work <laughs> that much more. Like you got to just blow right. off steam however you want to do it. Um, exactly. That's you know, directing. So when you transition to the you know behind the camera, I'm just curious what your directorial style is like um, and, and how do you like to collaborate with the crew having an appreciation for you know, both being on camera as well as all the different other facets of of production, like you do.
2: Yeah, it's really cool because I have made it a, a point to never even have my voice appear on anything I've directed. Right. So you really wouldn't know I was a part of it unless I was doing like the director's statement. In the interstitial, you know, commercial break, or you can get the credits roll by. Um, I, I I have a, a lot of respect for people who can do both. They can actually some of these like amazing actors can actually act in the film and direct it. Uh, can't imagine that. But but what I do do is um, I think because of the the interviewing skills that I have and the experience, I think I have been able to get great content. And I would say that my all of my films are driven by spoken content in terms of, you know, they're all told in the first person. Um, there's very little voiceover. You know, there's some. Some of my films have had none. A lot of my branded content that I do, you know, for online, um, mm-hmm. my shorter things have have no voiceover. Um, but I do, I do have a lot of pride in sort of my ability to uh, really see the vision of the story, see where it's going, make adjustments. Uh, be creative, have ideas. I mean, at this point, I know, you know, what I want with camera shots. I know, um, you know, a, much more about the technical aspects of it, which I can say. At first, I would say it was very strong in vision, creative, and content. Uh, but in terms of technical, you know, that was a learning process. Um, I still can't pick up a camera and shoot, but um, I, know it, I know what I know what I want to see, and I know what I what I want from my shooters. And I mean, everything. I sit in on. You know when they're when we're going through the sound at the end um, with music, um, all of that I have you know the control over all of that and I have a very strong opinion. You know I can look at something and very easily and you know right away I'm very decisive in terms of you know what I think works and doesn't. Um, and what I do with my hiring is I'll match up people with a project. So I've worked with several different producers, different. Uh, directors of photography, different editors, and I will look at the project, I'll look at the personality of the athlete or athletes involved, and I'll run down my list of who I think would be a good match. And, you know, it's different for different projects. So, I mean, that's pretty fun too, because I've collaborated with people all over the country that I've hired to do uh, my different films.
0: You know, you think about some of the choices that you've made as a director and and letting that story kind of uncover itself. I mean, clearly the probably the most um, well-known example is in the 30 for 30 you did about, um, uh, you know, Chris Everett and, and Martina Navratilova. Right. You, you really allowed them to sit and express their own story on their own terms. I'm just curious, like, how did you come to that conclusion to do that? Um, and I, I, first of all, I applaud you because I think one of the great revelations of 30 for 30 was how, it allowed the directors and the creatives on that project each kind of took their own stab at what they wanted, the story they wanted to tell in the way they wanted to tell it. It was all about breaking down the, the box of here's the way that we do, you know, sports century, exactly. the way that you know, HBO does films. So can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of came to that, um, you know, that part of, or that I guess I would say that vision and, and um, uh, just what it was like to allow the story to breathe a little bit on its own terms?
2: Well, in that case, that was a person, Chris Everett, that I had known for a really, really long time, Mm -hmm. and so I really had a step up and an advantage there, and when I I came in here, I had this production company, I sat at the uh, upfront that EFTM was doing, and they were introducing me, and this man was on stage talking about this new concept of 30 for 30, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'm just gonna take a total flyer. I didn't know him at all. You know, I got in, got my feet wet for a couple of months, and I said, Hey, do you mind if I like stop in your office? I have a question. <laughs> I was like kind of a yeah, sexy hey. move. And um, I said, Listen, I I have not directed a film yet. <laughs> um, I really want to. I started this company. Is there anything you don't have? is there anything right. that like you don't I mean, so we don't have a woman's film. And I was like, okay. And he goes, and you know, we don't have a tennis film. And I was like, ooh, okay, now you're talking. (laughs) And so talk to Chrissy. And then, you know, through the process of really Chrissy talking to Martina and really talking Martina into it, it it was decided right there. Because they were so close. I mean, when you, when you go to the, to, to the very genesis of the film, and in real life, it's Chrissy talking to Martina and telling Martina, this is my friend Hannah, you can totally trust her with your story. I mean, this was, I mean, she had already, Martina had gone halfway through a failed film with ESPN. Mm -hmm. So she got halfway through film that for whatever reason they had to pull up stakes and she was very, you know, not feeling, oh, this is something I want to do. This is something I need to do. I got to do it. But when Chrissy was like, we should do this, this is about our relationship and you've got to, and this is Hannah. And, and 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 that's that's how they bought in that's like how Shack and Dale bought in I mean that's how yep. Cheryl Foods bought in you know what I mean because it's a either personal relationship or reputation right so these are people who don't normally do these kinds of things or tell their stories right and so I thought wow, if they're that close that she can convince Martina to do this <laughs> right, right then that's that's what we have is that Really genuine relationship, and why do I need anybody else to tell us that story i don 't need anybody else because the whole thing is about their friendship. like right. the whole thing is the two of them so and knowing Chrissy and how gore, that personality that she has right, and also, I had covered Martina her whole career, and I knew that she was like sneaky funny right and kind of edgy, and that she's much warmer than people realized you know I thought who's better to tell it than them so we had them each give their best what are the you know five most important things to you and what are the you know five toughest things you've been through or whatever and we found out like where their stories intersected and just had them talk and let them go and I mean listen would that work for everybody absolutely not that's why you have to figure out a way right what's the dynamic in each film and what's that person like? You know what I mean, um I mean Cheryl soups before we even started our interview walked out of the out of the room was like, "I can't do this," and was like you know all, you know, crying and emotional and all of that. I mean, listen, everybody's different, right, and you have to bring in you know but what I do do is I bring in the principal voices first because that so my sort of strategy is you know let's see what we got, and I was pretty convinced that this would work um and it did. And then with, you know, uh, Shaq and Dale, what I did is I brought them together and then I gave it to my editor and I said, listen, can you, this guy, guy Paul Cruthers who's amazing, and I just said, look, here's the scenes with these two together. I think we can get away without anybody else in the film. Just edit those, go back and, and show me what we have. And like, it's raw version. Like, let's just watch and see what we have. And after we shot those scenes, we I put it together, you know, with my writer Aaron Cohen and we were like and producer Kevin Shaw like can we can we can we pull all other voices out of this film and just do it with the two of them? And I think we pulled it off. But you know, so that was more of a process rather than an intent. It was like, let's see if it works, if it does, you know, and my this next film, who knows, with Odell uh Beckham Jr. and his mom, um We'll see how that evolves, but if you get with the principles first, see what you got, and then go back in, and maybe, you know, maybe something magical is going to happen. You know, we set it up for something magical to happen, you know, <laughs> and if right. it doesn't, then, of course, you've got lots of other people you can interview and voices you can bring in, and, you know, with Shaq and Dale, we thought we could just get away with, with, with uh, Tim McGraw you know what I mean, doing that narration and his great Louisiana voice. And we thought we needed the narration, but in the end, we felt like we didn't. Those two personalities, again, because they were such a genuine relationship. Like, if there's one thing that I believe in, it's like, you don't stage something, you know? Like, I don't come in with a heavy-handed premise. I don't come in with, this is the absolute story I want to tell, and I'm going to tell it, and I'm going to tell it my way. I don't do that. I like seeing what a relationship is really truly is on a on a on a authentic level and bring that out and that and that's where all the good moments come from you
0: you do really seem drawn to the relationships um between different figures in sports and i i mean that in a good way i mean i i feel you know we are people that value the humans who play the game who cover the games and the different sides of them i think what's so interesting about a lot of a lot of your films when you talk about you know shack and dale or um unmatched is is It is that that push-pull, that dynamic between the people on screen and the the forces there.
2: Sports, in essence, especially team sports, is about relationships, you know, at its most basic level and how people affect each other. And, you know, I've seen really good teams implode you know (laughs) Um, and I mean I think all these years of just being on the sidelines and watching teams particularly NBA teams you know just how they how they would go and how the different relationships affected the way they would handle certain situations Um, but I think also just growing up around sports and you know my dad was a sports executive and so I always had athletes around the house and we were always like very aware when I was growing up of sort of the the secondary story which was the story off the court I think because my dad was in the business like we I always understood that there were, you know, families behind all of this, that there were very real people behind everything that happened on the floor. So I would say that my understanding of sports at a really fundamental level is not um is not the the X's and O's as as a primary. Um I sort of you know, I'm obviously fascinated with the way that people win and lose in a strategic standpoint and with talent. But at the same time, you know, I think what's really always fascinating to me is how did that how did that person get to be who they are? Right. You know? And, now, and how did those yeah, relationships course. in their life, you know, affect affect what they were able to do. I mean I did a whole film on, on Paige Stewart's widow and that relationship was right. just, you know, her her speaking. Um Listen, I, that's what I personally find fascinating. So it's, it's cool to be able to do that.
0: I, you know, I think it was Soderbergh that said that it, making a film is like you know, trying to make a, muse- a mosaic from like a foot and a half away. Um, for the people that are uh-huh. listening, that don't, they, they watch the documentaries, they, they, they like them, but they don't necessarily understand the, the sort of creative vision and the, the, the grit behind the production that, that's required to pull it off. What would you say is the biggest challenge um, in trying to pull off these types of large scale projects?
2: I think it's hard to get people to a feel that they need to tell their story, you know unless they're like really drawn to to publicity, and some people are, but certainly not everybody is, so I think that's a big hurdle, and I think you know just gaining trust too because let's face it if you're going to let someone into your life to the point of access that we all expect from films now you know you mentioned that this isn't this isn't the old way of doing movies you know the new way is complete transparency complete access you know no one wants to see anything that's staged um no one wants to buy in anything that's fake that's just not the way that's not the expectation that we have now so you know to to have people you know trust you To the point where they're willing to, you know, really give it up, right, and be honest and and you know, fully, fully truthful, and to really trust, you know, take that story which is precious, which is their story, and hand it to you. I would say that those are the hurdles that have to be you know, overcome at the start, and, you know, it can be timing, it can be someone's had a bad experience, it can be any number of things, it could be, you know, there's really no no way that, you know, people aren't necessarily paid large monies to do documentaries, you know, in fact, here at ESPN, they're not paid, so, you know, for some people, there's no financial incentive, maybe they don't want to do it. There's a lot of great stories out there, it doesn't mean that they're going to get made you know, because of all sorts of considerations. So I would say the biggest challenge is it's pretty easy to find great stories. Um, to find stories that people don't know is also a challenge. Uh, but then really on the next level, is just the actual like getting going, like really having everybody buy in and say, let's do this. And you're dealing with, you know, whomever you're dealing with, in, individuals, teams, agents, you know, it's a very sort of complex process. And sometimes you get all the way to the end and it's like it's not gonna happen. You know, and that's happened a lot. You know? So I would say the execution of it is is challenging, you know, particularly if if someone is, you know, very emotional and, you know, gets cold feet and is, you know, having a little bit of a tough time telling their story. But I would say it's just it's just the beginning of it. It's actually it's actually putting the pieces in place so you can say, ah and they never breathe easy until like, Literally, we're there, the camera's rolling, and the person's talking. Then I'm like, okay, this is really happening. This is good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned, you mentioned not knowing the production off the bat, but somehow you got really clean audio of uh, Chris and Martita in a, in a convertible, a moving convertible, which I'm always very impressed by. Uh, so, uh, well, you know, that man. convertible
2: was sitting on the flatbed of a truck.
0: OK, well, still, I mean, hey, yeah, it? yeah.
2: Uh, it wasn't like it wasn't like even though you could see the wind and stuff in there. She wasn't. She, they were driving the convertible in the in the wide shots. But she, as they were talking, they were not driving. They were safe driving. Okay. So I'll say, you know, I just said, hey, we don't save things. But um, in that case, you know, you had to for the audio. I mean, they were in a car and she had her eyes on the wheel, but they weren't. They weren't driving. We were driving a truck with the convertible on top. See what I'm saying? It. Otherwise, you're right. You're getting a like a windy convertible, and then it's like stupid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so
2: you know, you do not be she- able to hear it. Yes. That's right.
0: Um, well, and you mentioned, you know, you started the production company the same year as your foundation. I do want to talk a little bit about the foundation. So it's the Hannum Store Foundation, an advocate for for children's issues and, and especially for children and parents uh, and the parents of children suffering from debilitating and disfiguring vascular birthmarks. Uh, very fascinated by the work you guys do and, and by the personal sort of connection you have to this issue. Would you mind talking a little bit more about um, just the work that the foundation does and, and how you decided to, to get started with it?
2: So when I was born, I was born with a vascular anomaly, which is, you know, basically uh, the blood cells, the blood vessels aren't structured properly with the nerve endings that they have around them. So they... You know, a normal sort of blood vessel will be intact and in a vascular anomaly the blood vessel just grows and grows and grows and kind of goes wild. And it can manifest itself in any number of ways. I had what's called a port wine stain and so it looked like someone threw a glass of red wine off the, on the uh, left side of my face, on my eye and under my eyes. It kind of looked like someone hit me in the face and um you know when i was growing up my parents tried different kinds of surgeries and and you know different methods which were you know all all across the board like everything from you know, lasers that would leave burns to, you know, cutting it out to tattooing it, the color of skin. I mean, you wouldn't believe all the stuff they tried. So yeah. um, I went through a lot as a kid with that. And, you know, now the technology is great. They have a cold laser technology the laser actually penetrates the skin, doesn't burn the top. It can get, really get in and like cauterize and control those blood vessels. It's micro laser surgery. And none of it's covered by insurance. So you got these kids who are severely disfigured. Um, it's considered plastic surgery according to the insurance codes. And they, uh, you know, a lot of times they can't see, they can't breathe, they can't eat properly. Um, their parents are, you know, they go through hell uh, because people are constantly making comments about their parents and not, not to mention the kids themselves. And so uh, what we do is we, you know, pay for their surgeries. So we have families come to us, and we've had families come to us around the world, from around the world, and we have the actually the top so- surgeon in the world, Milton Weiner. He is the top doctor in the world. He does all our surgeries. Um, and some kids need like 10, 15 surgeries. Uh, but, you know, we just had a little girl from Minnesota come in. And, um, you know, she's had two surgeries now. And, uh, I met her mother. And it's just, you know, they just can't believe. I mean, it's, it's such an odd thing. Thank God parents now have access to the internet, something that didn't exist when I was little. And they go on, you know, and they can find us. And, you know, in many cases we can help. And, um, it's just, you know, a lot of doctors don't even know what they're looking at when they look at this, right? They don't know how bad it could go, get. They don't know how to treat it. And, um, you know, it's we're we're experts in that. And about 4,000 kids are born each year that need really need to see a, a specialist, you know, a pediatric dermatologist. But, again, a lot of times people just don't know what they're seeing. They think it will go away. You know, and sometimes it's just, you know, the kids are just, you know, in really, really bad shape. So we try to get them young when they're babies if we can. And um, do do a lot of work to save them. A lot of heartache and a lot of health problems later.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I I know we live in a time of cynicism now, where some people hear that oh, athletes or sports figures have foundations, and some of them just you know aren't all that involved. But you're you're so involved. In fact, um, as we were planning for the interview, I heard a, a story about how you uh, and like an eighteen month old who was coming uh, to New York for a surgery just took a trip to the American Doll Store, like or excuse me, the the American Girl Doll Store. You, you kind of surprised them. Can you, can you recount some of that story?
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's a little flown, and uh this was the second time they came in for their surgery, and I noticed, and her mom has this, like, great Facebook page, and, um, and she had, you know, she, she's just been great and out there with sharing their story with people. And I think that's really valuable because you can't be embarrassed about it. You know what I mean? The more you talk about it, the more other people will say, wait, my kid, you know, has that issue. Or, wait, my kid looks like that. Or, you know, I need to be more tolerant when I see someone that, you know, ha- has, you know, an issue or doesn't look like everyone else. And so I just thought this, like, yeah, the, all the all the parents are amazing. But I thought, you know, this – Young mother was like so brave, really really putting everything out there and I knew they were coming to the city and I knew that um, little Sloan liked baby dolls so um we kind of played a trick on them <laughs> so we had them come to the American Girl store like oh we're gonna we're gonna have you guys come and the nice people at American Girl are gonna give you a baby doll and, um, and then I was waiting for her in the lobby and <laughs> I surprised her and it was really fun I like rushed down from work that day like a lot of times my schedule, you know, people coming for surgery. I can't always meet everybody, and some of the Mm -hmm. surgeries are done in Europe with a hospital we work with in in Germany. So, obviously, some of my, you know, Eastern Bloc patients and stuff I've never met. But um, it was so cool, and the mom was crying, and um, I really got to hang with the baby so Um, and spend a lot of time with her, and um, that's, you know, I've done that with, I did that also with a little boy from South Africa that we were with, you know, I went and hung out with him for a while, and there's another boy from China. And I got to know him and his family. And so, you know, listen, if if you can, it's just important, I think, to make that personal connection so that, you know, I could tell the mom, hey, listen, I went through this as a kid. I understand what you're going through as a parent. My parents mm-hmm. went through it. Um, You know, I'm here for you. You know, just to be able to say those words in person means a lot more than just, okay, here's a check, you know? right so um i mean obviously, I'm the blessed one in this in this scenario, you know um but again, it's just you know i thought it was really important it was a meaningful day it was a really good feeling, really good day
0: well it's a great story- i mean it's a great cause, and we we encourage everyone if they want to know if they want to know more information um uh, they should look it up at hanstormfoundation uh, they can also follow you on twitter at hanstorm e s p n uh, thank you for giving us all the time, talking about your, your, your production company, your directorial work. When is the Odell documentary slated to come out?
2: Um, we don't know yet. So okay. it's going to start shooting this summer. Um, so I'm not going to jump the gun on that one. Um, but we're really excited about it.
3: Yeah,
0: no, it sounds fantastic. I mean, I could just make up a, an air date if you want. I'll just say, I'll just say, like September fifteenth. All right, just check it out. No, <laughs> sure, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hannah, thank you again for the time. Really appreciate it. Joining us on the show right now is Jensen Karp. Jensen is one of the most colorful personalities in Hollywood. He's a comedian, a podcast host, an art gallery owner, a writer, and once upon a time, one of L.A.'s hottest rappers. In the late 1990s, Jensen performed under the name Hot Carl and scored a record deal with Interscope. His new memoir, Kanye West Owes Me $300, details the rise and demise of his rap ambitions and is being hailed as one of the funniest and best music memoirs ever. Last week, I heard Jensen on J.J. Reddick's podcast, and the minute he started name-checking Dana Barros and Cedric Sabalos rap tunes, I knew we had to have him on Just Not Sports. So today, we're going to debate his new book and maybe a little bit about the best and worst of athlete rap. So Jensen, thank you so much for joining today. Congratulations on the book. Uh, The reception to it has just been uh, amazingly positive. What's it been like to see the outpouring of uh, enthusiasm?
3: It's been I mean, this is a a long time coming. I've been I signed the deal like two years ago. It took me a year to write it and a year to get it ready for everyone. And it's been crazy. I mean, you know, I still, I get the opportunity to go to places and say Dana Barrows. So clearly I'm having a <laughs> good time.
0: Um, I want to get We're going to go deep on athlete rap in a minute. I want to start with the book. Um, first things first. I, now you've been on, as you mentioned on Twitter, you've been on like every podcast in the world by now. So we appreciate you making time for us. So there's a lot of ways oh, people please. can hear your story, but I, I just wanted to kind of, Start with um, the origins and your battle rapping, because, um, you know, the way you describe it, uh, your, your big break came on an L.A. radio station where you were just kind of dominating the airwaves for like over a month. Can you kind of recount a little bit of the details of how you um, sort of transitioned into into notoriety there in the late 90s?
3: Yeah, I mean, I uh, had rapped my whole life since I was a kid. I studied it in the same way I studied the NBA. I mean, I just I was obsessed with uh, stats. And and if someone released an album, I was there on Tuesday at the warehouse to pick it up. I mean, I, I was obsessed. And so I wanted to start rapping myself, and I did. And and I was pretty good. I, I grew up sort of always the best in my area, and, and especially considering I, I look like an accountant. So. <laughs> Uh, are not rappers and so I, I basically became one of the top battlers in high school. I would go out of my way to find as many battles as I could whether they were at shows or at other high schools uh, and so that was what I did and, and there was a radio contest in LA that started in LA ended up at Hot 97 as well but you call in and you battle against three to four other rappers a day and you don't know what they look like it's just over the phone it's kind of a call and response situation and, and I knew I'd be good at it so I called and the first day I won uh, and the second day I won and Around day four, I realized, you know, the champion before me that had the most string of wins in a row was 10. uh, And at the end of my run, I retired with 43 wins in a row.
0: (laughs) Do you remember what beat you finally? Like, what was it about? Like, it's kind of like a Ken Jennings streak. So I'm just curious, was it a a particular guy who was skillful or was it just you didn't have it? No,
3: I I, I lost to USC finals. Uh, I I was in college at the time and uh, I tried my hardest to continue to go into the studio after a while you get off the phone, they go, please come in the studio. So for thirty of them or something, I, I was right with them. Uh became almost a personality on the show itself. And uh when when finals came around, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much work for us. <laughs> uh, and so at that time is when I walked off that, that that station is when the record deal offers started to roll in.
0: What is it about your style that you think made you such a good battle rapper?
3: Uh I was influenced by, you know, Feral Munch as much as I was Don Rickle. You know, I sort of grew up a fan of comedy and uh, I, I was obsessed with everyone's hour on HBO and, uh, you know, I watched I watched Piscopo for his HBO special in VHS, so it broke. Uh, I, comedy was, was really a passion for me. And so I knew there was a way to mix those two. And also, because I was a white kid growing up in the suburbs, I wasn't willing to sort of appropriate the culture. And so it was a perfect way for me to do what I love and follow the art form and not have to sound like I'm in NWA or or I'm Paris or you know like I can't speak politically like that and that's what I loved about hip hop so I found my own lane which was sort of funny battle rap stuff um but yet still having like a, I could still murder someone still having great skill <laughs>
0: um it's so funny cuz you mentioned like everything about your story I think is is it lends itself very well to um you know v- to humor, I mean, you talk about pulling your name from like a euphemism for a Cleveland steamer, like a synonym for Cleveland steamer. You talk about, um, you know, just sort of of how you you clearly you have a very witty, funny style. That said, what I was really drawn to in your conversation with JJ when I was listening to the podcast was um, I, it's, and it's hard to describe. So forgive me if I don't do it correctly. Like you don't strike me I- as someone who's like overly self-deprecating about your rap career like clearly you were a very good rapper you got a a a deal with interscope i really liked how you and jj talked candidly about his rap and it was respectful like one of the things we love on our show is when athletes go out and try things and put themselves out there and we don't like judge if it's um if everybody's not if jj reddick's not as good as jay-z i mean okay fine i'm just curious like do you have a hard time like talking about your own rap career given as as you know in in one sense, I am reading the coverage and it talks about you know oh, it kind of imploded right when it was about to take off or or like you it, they they describe you talking about your failure in the industry, but then again i I look at it, and I still think you made huge strides, you got a huge record deal, you kind of overcame a lot of obstacles and uh and and stood out like don't you feel really good about what you were able to accomplish
3: at this point yes yeah. uh ten years of ten years of therapy, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But that's that's not how you feel when you're 21 years old and you think you're going to be on TRL uh, and you realize the album's not coming out. So uh, I wanted to write this book from an earnest point of view. I, I, I write comedy for a living. I could easily sit here and wink about being the Jewish rapper. I could wink about anything and sort of make fun of myself for trying. And that, that I was not going to do that to myself. I knew that was disrespectful to what I did. It was disrespectful to my parents who were on the ride with me. Um, it was, it, I wanted to earnestly tell you what I was going through and what I went through. I wanted to be a rapper. I loved it very much. I knew I was talented. And I, I feel like at the end of the day, uh, I, I didn't get a shot that I deserved, but beyond that, I was ahead of my time, you know, at the time, acting like a suburban white kid while rapping was it sounded weird to your ears. Nowadays, it would be weird if someone didn't do that. So I, I just was ahead of my time in that way. And, you know, the, the music's aged well, people seem to like it more now than they did 11 years ago, which is nice. Um, but no, this book is not, I'm not here to make fun of myself. Uh, I'll do it. There's self-deprecating things in it, but I, I, I never sort of, uh, I'll never, I'll never hot Carl on the process. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that that's what I think is, is, is so great about it. And, um, is there, I mean, I don't want to give away too much about the contents of the book, but, uh, would you mind just kind of highlighting for our listeners just a little bit about some of the, the scope of what you talk about when it comes to your career? I mean, there were so many anecdotes that, you know, if people haven't heard from, from getting, you know, handed a, a briefcase full of cash to, you know, clearly, uh, collaborating with, with true greats, you know, folks like Kanye West and, and many others, like, you know, what are some of the stories about the book that you like to highlight to people just to sort of get their attention?
3: Uh, One day I was sitting on my bed in a dorm eating ramen because that's what I could afford. And then the next day, uh, Mac 10, the U.S. Coast gangster rapper, heard me on the radio, uh, found my phone number, got my phone number, ended up uh, showing up at my parents' house with $50,000 cash in a briefcase. (laughs) It was bonkers. He pulled up in a car that was worth more than uh, basically the same amount as my house. Uh, And uh, I didn't take the money because I thought that was ridiculous and probably a shady industry story. But we ended up staying friends. And I ended up signing the Interscope and, and recording with DJ Quick and Redman and Fabulous and a young Kanye West and Maya and Sugar Ray. It was just, I was always like a fish out of water in that situation. And uh, I, I looked at it sort of from the eyes of a, a journalist. I was a journalism major. So uh, that's what the book is about. That that crazy experience and then finding out my album was not coming out and, and just living as this 19 to 21-year-old uh, in an industry I never saw myself getting in.
0: So I want to transition a little bit. To just your role in sports, because one of the things people may not know is you had a song on, um, I believe it was NBA Live 2003, the video game, correct? That's right. So That's I found right, this, yeah. you, you mentioned it online, I, I found I found it online, I, I, I really like this song. Um, oh, I, I want to say this, that I think it's the first time I've ever heard a rapper talk about setting a screen. Um, so I got to give you credit for that. What, what do you remember about that process? Cause the, I, you know, I, a lot of us, uh, on the show, we work in different parts of sports, like TV production marketing. So I'm like the marketing douchebag. I can only imagine you taking notes from like the EA people about like weaving our slogan and stuff like that. Like what was the process of writing the song and, and how'd you get contacted by them?
2: Uh,
3: this guy, Steve Schnurr, who, uh, was kind of a revolutionary in, in video games. He was the guy who sort of created your own soundtrack idea. You know, that was his thing, you know, the Xbox came out and you used to be able to put music on it and then you could play your own music. And I was like, oh my God, you can play any video game with your own music. So Schnurr came up with the idea of 4EA putting the music in the game, uh, which in NBA Live 2003 was the first time they had done it. It came with a CD. So millions of people got a CD with my song on it. Uh, And Schnurr had heard of my buzz at Interscope uh, through my manager, I believe. And uh, he asked me to do a song for it. And I don't think they ever noted me on anything. I think I I was such a fan of EA from Lakers versus Celtics on. Um, I bought every game they've ever put out, I think, at that point on Genesis and on. And uh, I'm the one who put it's in the game, it's in the game. I did all that stuff and and made sure I kind of name-checked basketball dudes and and all those things. That was was all me. The only thing they bleeped out is, uh, I said, throw bows like Kenyon Martin. Uh, referencing <laughs> referencing like you know rappers are throwing their elbows that was like a big thing, and uh, and so that's that's all they they just took out bows. The NBA asked them to take that out.
0: And are true that you were a, a hidden player in the game or no?
3: Yes, no, absolutely. If you use the code California while playing the game, I show up as well as other people with other codes like Busta Rhymes, Just Blaze, DJ Clue, B Rich, uh, and you got to pick your your how good you were in the game they, they, one to a hundred. They said, what do you want? I go. I don't know what are other rappers picking. They said, uh, "Well, Clue pick ninety nine. be Rich pick ninety nine. You know, you have fun with it." And I go, <laughs> and, and I, in my mind, I'm like, "Well, I'm a pretty. I'm into realism. Like my my hip hop voice is my same as my normal voice. Like I don't I don't talk about guns or jewelry. Like I talk about what I know. And I can't. You know, I only played freshman basketball. I averaged three points a, a game. Uh, so I said, i uh, being a Jewish guy. I'd actually I'd like to be uh, seventy seven. Uh, and they were like, "Why would you be? What are you talking about?" They're like, "That's not Robert Ori's a 79. Uh, and I was like, no, it's fine. I'll be a 77. So kids kids who, I also am wearing short shorts and goggles, but kids who who coincidentally find me in the game just find an average bench rider. Like I'm not even a good player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. And, and I got to say, like, I was so impressed hearing you talk to, first of all, your, your interview with JJ on his podcast was amazing. I, I recommend everyone go oh, listen to it. Thank Have you. you found the JJ rap journal uh, yet? I feel like it's the holy grail of hip hop at this point.
3: It is. It, it really. It's become the the lost Big L tape. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I mean, it, it, he, he he thinks that someone has it. I mean, I, it, we put it out into the ether. So if it pops up, it does. But the crazy part is, off the air, he, he puts off the air and he goes, "Oh, well, here I'm gonna I'll rap for you." And he, and he rapped for me, and it was good. Yeah. Why? Didn't, like, why didn't he do it on the I air? Don't I kept know. wondering. I, dude, he was really good. I was. It's very poetry based. So I think he's just he doesn't want people to make fun of it. But I was like, dude, that was pretty good. I mean, he, he was He uh, maybe one day.
0: So who would you put on your – we're the connoisseurs of all – our show only does um, – only focuses on what athletes do away from sports. So we're the connoisseurs of all, like, their albums and stuff. So I'm just curious, like, who would you put on your, your rap, Mount Rushmore of, like, athlete rappers?
3: Well, Shaq is one. Yeah. Shaq will always be my one. I, I feel like he – he did it the perfect way. He was the first basketball player-rapper friend. He really was. He was the first one to show up. On Arsenio with the Fushnikins. I mean, he yep. he had a blast. He was he had a blast. He, he left LSU and then he, he basically found all his favorite rappers and became friends with them. It's incredible. <laughs> uh, and he was really the first one to do that. So I, I put Shack up top. I love No Hooks, a song from uh, with RZA that he has. Yep, I love it. It's great. Uh, I tweeted at him once asking if I could get the lyrics tattooed on my back. He tweeted back, I already have those. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's my favorite. And then you know, I really like uh, I really like Lillard. I think he can rap. Yep. Uh, I think he actually can flow. And then I put Shumpert mm-hmm. three, Um, uh, my four, um, I mean, Dana Barrows for that one thing Four,
0: uh, yeah. Check it by Dana Barrows. I think is, is arguably one of the top raps, like songs from an athlete ever. And yeah. um, your list is similar to my, I would have Shaq on there. Clearly. I think he's like the George Washington of like athlete rappers, um, yeah. I think Lillard, it, it goes on there because I, I feel like he's striving for true artistry. I mean, you guys got a a, yeah. a, a, a song out about Ferguson, like he, he's doing something different. That's completely not a novelty. Um, yeah. I, I would also I, like after that, it gets a little tougher. Like Dana Barros is, is there for I think he's a good technical rapper. I kind of like Iverson, uh, a.k.a. Jules, yeah. and not just because it's his birthday today, but um, he because he I think was the first guy to just like pretend that he was out there like threatening people's lives and being hard like everyone knew alan iverson was like showing up every night not being suspended by the nba there's no way he's living this like crazy like life but his his persona took that on which i thought was interesting but i don't
3: know yeah well i i i, I we can go outside of basketball right oh
0: yeah yeah any any sport i mean so,
3: i'm gonna throw in as my six right because we got the five or five either way my last my last entry is going to be ken griffey jr oh really and i'll tell you why i think the one song he did is actually pretty good uh it's called it's called the way we swing with kid sensation uh out of, out of seattle and and uh it's his rookie year and and I, I think it's pretty good
0: i i don't even know i'm gonna have to look that up like I, yeah I don't, I don't even remember that i the other thing too is like I'm glad you went. i went glad you went off sport. You know, I know like Le'Veon Bell for the Steelers has like a mixtape yeah. out. Like, I why do you think more guys aren't doing this? I, I felt like there was a huge push in the '90s to be diversified and like have your hands in entertainment, and now I feel like that's gone away again. Do you know why more guys aren't putting themselves out there and putting out albums?
3: I mean, big reasons is that they get made fun of a lot. You yeah. know, Shaq is the only one who gets that real credit, but but you know, Kobe and guys, guys have never shook that one joke. You know, no one, people haven't been able to sort of get away from it. And, and, and these athletes, because they're the best in their city, um, ever mostly, you know, these guys are the odds of making the NBA or even baseball, or any of these things are so minimal. They don't have time to become good rappers. So if someone's a good rapper and a good athlete, that's that's gotta be rare because you have to dedicate your time to both crafts um, to really be that good. Um, and like, for example, like I, I, I was a good baseball player, uh, in high school uh, enough to be varsity as a freshman. And I, uh, got worse and worse as I just focused on rap. I, I treated rap like my, you know, that was my sport. So I could see how someone wouldn't be able to do both.
0: Yeah. We got to grade these guys on a curve. Like Jay-Z is not also like the top, top 10, you know, basketball player on the earth. Like, so you, you'd give cut the
3: guys some slack. That said, one but then guy- when you hear, but then but then but then when you hear about rappers who were good athletes, it's crazy. Like you hear, Cameron was an incredible basketball player, uh, right. and Pete Nice, Pete Nice from third base, was supposedly a great basketball player. So you hear every once in a while, you hear things about guys who were like recruited, um, and you're like, what? Like these guys played college ball, um, and then uh, and then they become rappers. So it's hard, I guess, to keep both up.
0: Well, Master P, like, got into the, like, he got a cup of coffee yeah. with the Hornets or, or whatever, like, in terms of tryouts. Yeah. So it's hard to tell if that was publicity stunt, but, I mean, just to even not embarrass yourself in a preseason game is, like, an enormous accomplishment for an average human being. Yeah.
3: He was a walk-on for two teams, Charlotte right. and Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and Little Romeo played for u s d
0: Right, right. Although I will argue, maybe so, maybe Little Romeo might have been about recruiting. <laughs> like I don't know. I'm not sure. No, it was. It was. It was. It was. OJ Mayo
3: wanted him on the team. That's, that's right. supposedly the truth. Well, that's supposedly the truth.
0: And I heard you talking with JJ. A, a very popular opinion is that Kobe Bryant remains uh, promise unfulfilled in terms of his rap career. Rather than just pile on Kobe, what would you have done differently to salvage his career if you had been able to like produce with him or collaborate with him?
3: Well, there's always that rumor that JJ brought up that like Kobe Bryant used to drive around Philadelphia looking for battles and ciphers and stuff because he really loved (laughs) rapping at a young age. Right. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. But if it is true, the way that he came out, he was on an R&B rap song with Tyra Banks. Like, he basically, I think he got thrown into the Trackmasters, I think. I think that's who produced the song. And the Trackmasters make such shiny stuff that he he, almost like rapped the same shiny way he was introduced to the NBA and, and Shaq was the exact opposite. Shaq was, you know, grimy and, and on the Fushnikin song saying that he got drafted before Leitner in in morning. I mean, he, he right. was, he was living the life of a rapper. And and Kobe on the other hand was sort of on this little tuffet uh, for this Tyra Banks song. And, and that looked terrible. And the song was terrible. And, uh, and that was his biggest problem is that he has no connection to the actual hip-hop streets and stuff and it just it just blaringly showed
0: yeah that song was also like kind of latin infused to try to take advantage of that whole like you know latin boom at the time. Thing, yeah yeah but yeah. He, but i if i was kobe i would have done it all in italian like i mean that was kind of yeah, his, yeah. his thing like maybe go tony parker style and just like you know totally foreign language um, i gotta let you go in here a second but I, one, one or two real quick questions if you could have collaborated with one of the athletes back in the day like who would you have wanted to to do it with
3: I mean, Shaq is the easiest answer, yeah. Um By far, I, I would have loved to do a song with Shaq. I, that would have been a major coup for me. I, I that would have been. I still thrilling. I, I love him. He's my he's my favorite basketball player of all time. So um, that would have been awesome. But if I had to pick anyone to rap with uh, in 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 sports in general, uh, I think like <laughs> there's there's a part of me that likes the fact that like i could tell a cedric sabalos at the time <laughs> that, I, that i that i knew he rapped like there's a part of me that would just be like hey man uh, i'd love to do this and ron artest would be a fun one too or meta world piece yep. like just guys that aren't necessarily great rappers but just really kind of obscure reference that you know they're rappers i love that
0: i gotta we gotta prod you to like put out like a mixtape where you just like remix like blood in my gatorade and like all the other old like <laughs> old songs from those guys. Here's what I would have done for you if I could play manager. I would have had you after, you know, Malik Seeley passed away, unfortunately, I would like mix you with his vocals and like sync it to like like sample Natalie Cole singing with her dad, like unforgettable or something like that. Do something like, yeah, really yeah. emotional, like a tribute song. Would have been great, man. Would have been great. I would
3: have done, I mean, yeah, the hologram of of yeah, Malik Seeley. <laughs> uh, that that hologram would have been great. Uh, yeah, I mean, those those those. Uh, any uh, literally, I probably would have done a song with any basketball player. I'm a fanatic, and the fact that most basketball players now um, that are in the NBA were big NBA Live 2003 fans. Right. Uh, so it, it's even weirder to to think that they had listened to my stuff as kids, and and uh, and now are, are grown athletes, and I pay a lot of money to see them perform.
0: One thing I'll throw at you. I'm like an, a Michael Jordan rap truther. Like, I believe that he laid down a rap track for the Michael Jackson song, Jam, that someone told him, like, this is terrible, destroy this. What would you say to that? Any any truth there, or am I just, like, really barking up the wrong tree?
3: Well, I think it's the wrong tree, and I'll tell you why, because uh, if you know Michael Jordan's history, he was never a rap guy.
0: Right.
2: Um,
3: that was part of the knock on him, is that these, uh, these uh, rappers loved him, but he was clearly an R&B guy, and that's why he was always talking about uh you know he was always talking about uh uh, r kelly you know r kelly was one of his best friends which is what you saw in space jam uh but i I don't think he ever had a real connection uh to hip-hop at all so i I don't i think if anything he was writing songs for guy or r kelly
0: (laughs) well that would be that that's up there with the jj reddick lost rap journal that we have to find um well we can't thank you enough for giving us so much time the book is out People can get it um, in bookstores, online, on Amazon, um, iBooks. Uh, we want them to follow you on Twitter at JensenClan88. Go to your website, jensencarp.com. Again, the book yep. Kanye West owes me $300. Uh, just getting amazing reception. Congratulations. It's a, it's a fantastic story and best of luck.
3: Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So y'all
0: hot Carl MC.
3: NBA Live 2003 Uh What up 3H What up Schnur It's like (laughs) Wow Yeah Yeah It's like Wow We're about to kill it now Why don't you press start
0: Alright that is our show for this week If you didn't like it Just remember what Malcolm Jenkins says About his bow tie lines The beauty my friend is In the imperfection Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Please leave us a comment. Tell your friends, too. It really helps with our visibility on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, at JustNotSports. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com, backslash, Sports. Email us tips, thoughts, topics, uh, solicitations for Joe, which we've gotten a few of over over Ew. the months, uh, to JustNotSports at gmail.com. That's a true story, Joe. Somebody uh, sent us a note and wanted to know if you were single. And... uh I immediately sent it to your girlfriend's (laughs) Facebook and was like, Joe's got groupies. Oh yeah. That's weird. Uh, let's end with some shout outs. Uh, I'm going to shout out Hannah storm and her team for setting up the interview. They reached out to us actually a few weeks ago. Um, uh, and we've been going back and forth. Uh, she's super busy. So I'm really glad they were able to, uh, to help us uh, book everything. Chloe from her team as well. Uh, just really great. And then Jensen, who you know, we tracked down over the weekend, I heard his podcast with J.J. Reddick. Everyone needs to go listen to that. It's, J.J.'s show is the, is the Vertical podcast with J.J. Reddick. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's one of the best athlete interviews I've ever, actually ever, ever, ever heard because he just kind of goes in. J.J. goes into his own story, his own kind of career with rap. Um, and it's just a blast. It's, go, go check it out. Joe, any shout-outs?
1: Um, I will shout out the greatest of all time. Muhammad Ali, yes. Sad news, um, but just an unbelievable icon. And uh, here's something real quick. Yeah. Rest in peace. Here's something that drives me crazy about the media, and
0: I don't. I'm not one of those guys that like rips the media. Like we work with media, Gareth in media. Our show is media. Like I'm not ripping the institution, but it was universally kind of agreed upon after Muhammad Ali died that like it was okay for him to be complicated and not always super popular about his opinions that like, that's what made him immortal was that on the one hand, he was a civil rights um, icon and pioneer. On the other hand, he's calling Joe Frazier a gorilla and making like horrible sort of racially tinged comments to him all the way up through their, you know, their fights He's a complex personality. He's not someone that you can peg and pin down and say this is who Muhammad Ali was. Um I've listened to a, a number of top tier media talk about that's the beauty of him as a uh, the words I use on our Twitter were he was a cultural supernova. I would like to invite anyone who covered Muhammad Ali to think about that the next time we talk about athletes. And in far more trivial cases Muhammad Ali is a pioneer because he challenged the United States uh, oh. government about going to war. Yeah. He uh, he was at the heart of uh, issues like race and religion, and that kind of stuff. But if it's OK for him to be super
1: complicated and that's why we celebrate him,
0: I just think like let all athletes be complicated.
1: I agree. I think that's a great point. And I wonder if some of that is, you know, in hindsight, it's it's years down the road. It's uh, I guess I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's always like this. When an athlete passes, we,
0: we go back and we celebrate their faults as well as their greatest achievements. Yeah. And I was just wondering why we can't do that more in the moment, in the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Recognizing that yeah. you're a person. So. I agree. With
0: that, Gareth, Adam, we'll see you guys next week. But why don't we just go back, pull from the archives. Adam, doing doing some shout outs. Joe, Joe, you love. we love making more work for you.
1: No, it's easy. Let's do it. Uh, as usual, I'd like to shout out my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Testify. Lil Swanee. Meech. Ron Mack, and my other cousin, Ron.
0: I love those guys. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, certified by Jensen Karp to be the greatest athlete rapper of all time. The George Washington of
1: sports rap. Booty rappers, stay stay booty. Stay booty.
2: Stay booty.